you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, please? Every week, a new theme, a familiar thing that we know, but that we need to be reminded of, a candle uh, that burns, that reminds us of certain things. Last week, it was hope. In a world characterized by increasing hopelessness, believers, Christians, followers of Jesus Christ have the ability not just to talk about, but to understand and to know and to experience real hope because our hope isn't founded on anything in this world. Circumstances, people, their responses, our jobs, situations, all of those things that are so fluid, so temporary, so changing, our hope isn't fixed to any of those things. We know that we can have real and lasting hope because it's attached to something greater. It's attached to Jesus Christ. We know the God that we serve, and we know what He's promised. We know the God that we serve is all-powerful, completely sovereign, absolutely in control over every piece, every part, every detail of His creation. And we know that that same all-powerful God loves us. That He promises to do certain things, to meet our needs, to accomplish the work that He started in us, to make us more like Christ. And so hope isn't just this long look forward into heaven, although it certainly is. We know that we have hope that lasts for right now. Hope that is good for our situations, each and every one of them, good, bad, difficult, uh, easy, joyful, deeply painful. We can have hope in all of those things because we know the God who is sovereign over all of those things, and we know that he's accomplishing his purposes in all of those things. Even when I can't see it, and the reality is that oftentimes you and I won't be able to see it. We know that God knows what he's doing, and he works all things together for the good of those who love him. And today we come to the second candle, that's the candle of peace. We're going to look at a very, very familiar passage, but maybe we'll be reminded of some unfamiliar truths. So uh, if you're not there already, find your way to Luke chapter 2. And I'm going to start reading in verse 8. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, this is what God's word says. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Let's pray. Lord, familiar scenes, familiar words, we go over them every year as we read, as we sing. Lord, they're even familiar truths, peace. But Lord, we're a people that struggle with peace. Today, as we come to your words, today, as we reflect on those familiar truths, I pray that you would open our eyes, blinded by our sin, walking around in darkness, our stubborn hardness and rebellion. Lord, would you break through that? Open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. And then help us to walk in obedience. Help us to be a people who experience real peace. A people who not only experience real peace, but a people that pursue real peace. And how we need your help to do all of those things. And we pray these and ask in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, peace is a hard thing to come by because we live in a world of conflict. There's conflict among nations. One of the main stories this year has been a war that seems physically separated from us, but whose impacts we feel at least every time we go to the gas pump. But conflict characterizes nations. And if that wasn't enough, we have conflict in our own nation. It's an election year. Not that we need an election year to have conflict in our nation, but it seems to be heightened in an election year as you have struggle and conflict between political parties. But even without that, we have conflict between races, between classes, between ideologies, between sports teams. There always seems to be some kind of a fight that we can get in and that we're not afraid to move into in a very, I don't know, vigorous way on social media. There's conflict in the workplace. There's conflict within families, and some of us, as we move into these next few weeks, we understand that that potential for conflict is heightened. As people get together, as there's increased time together and maybe even increased expectation on what things should look like when people get together, and all of this just stirs up conflict, and we look for just maybe a moment of peace. Because maybe when we're not even in direct outward conflict with somebody, maybe we struggle so deeply to find peace that... We can't even have when we're by ourselves. How do we find peace in a world and in our hearts that are often anything but peaceful? How do we come to a place like this and sing songs about peace that are so familiar and have them feel anything but empty and maybe even hypocritical when we think about it? Well, the reality is that we can experience real peace, but we need to understand what peace means. Because for some of us, peace just means the absence of conflict. As long as I'm not actively fighting with someone, then maybe that's close enough to peace. For some of us, maybe peace just means a few moments of quiet, even though I know that as soon as the kids come back in the house, it will not be peacefully quiet again. But we need to understand that real peace doesn't just mean temporary quiet, that real peace means the total absence of conflict, a genuine restoration, a real wholeness not only between people, but first and foremost, between me and the God who made me. So today we're going to look at peace from two perspectives. First, we're going to look at vertical peace. Peace between God and men. Peace between creator and creation. And then we're going to look at how that vertical peace impacts our horizontal peace. Peace with one another. Peace in our relationships and peace in our circumstances. So let's open Luke 2. And we're going to see how a heavenly announcement spoke to the greatest need for peace that people have. And to understand what makes for peace, first of all, we need to understand what breaks peace. If we're going to talk about peace, we need to understand the peace breaker. And we know the story. Uh, We know that the angels, and we just read it, we know that the angels are going to say something about peace on earth. But why does there need to be peace? And what does that have to do with the earth? And again, uh, Luke 2 is a familiar account. But if we back up to Luke chapter 2, verse 1, maybe as we read through these verses, we see where the conflict is. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now we read that and we assume that maybe this peace on earth deals with the conflict that is present because Rome is ruling basically everybody across the known world. And we know that Rome was not the most kind and gentle ruling people. They loved peace, but they loved peace because they were the most powerful. And Rome's armies kept the peace. And we read this and we think maybe the conflict that needs to be addressed is between the people of God, Israel, and Caesar Augustus. If you had asked a Jew at this time where peace on earth needed to start, they would have certainly told you that that's where it needed to start. You want peace? Deal with Rome. 
And not only did it bring a military presence, but you can see that it came with the burden of taxes. But the reality is that military occupation and financial oppression are not the heart of the conflict here. That's not where peace needed to start. Well, maybe there's peace that's needed in the more immediate circumstances. Verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And we read that and we see a poor young couple in a bustling city uh, with no reservations and no vacancies. And we read that and we have the Christmas specials and the movies in our mind and maybe the conflict is this poor couple just trying to get where they need to go and... You know, at worst, the heartless innkeeper. At best, maybe the overworked and overwhelmed innkeeper who can't be bothered to find a place for these people that are obviously in need. And maybe that's the conflict. That's the kind of struggle that we're dealing with. Well, I would suggest that that's not where it is either. This is a young couple. They are likely what we would consider very poor. And they're traveling to Bethlehem because Joseph is of the house and the family of David. It means they're heading back to this ancestral family home like everyone else to be taxed. And in this context, if you read through that carefully, you'll notice there's no mention of a heartless innkeeper, and the reality is it's probably because there was no inn. And you say, of course there's an inn. It's right there in my Bible. Um, Bear with me. Uh, Luke knows the word for inn. He uses it later on in Luke's gospel. He talks about the parable of the good Samaritan. We've heard that, right? And when the man is beaten up and cared for by that kind Samaritan who would normally be considered an enemy, he's put in an inn. And that's one word for inn. This isn't that word. In fact, this word is only used a couple other times in the New Testament. And when this word is used, it's used in the context of the upper room. In fact, later on in Luke, he uses the same word. Luke 22, verse 11 Jesus says, tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room, this word, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. So here's what's likely happening. Joseph and Mary are coming back to the home where generations of his family would have lived. Perhaps several generations still live there together. And these are not grand palaces. These are small homes. And that home fills up quickly when everyone comes to town for a census. And so Mary and Joseph arrive, and there is quite physically no room for them in that guest room, in that large family common area. Now, there might have been a few eyebrows raised at Mary's pregnancy. She was with child before they were formally married. But in all likelihood, what happens is they're put on the first floor where you would bring in the animals for the night. They're somewhere in the proximity of family, kept warm and kept close. But these are still not the circumstances that you would expect a king to be born in. But maybe that removes some of the conflict that we would assume would be there. And then we move into those fields surrounding Bethlehem. And that angel appears. And this is where we have to deal with the need for peace. As the angel appears to those shepherds and the glory of the Lord shines around them, they are filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. That is the first thing angels have to say because every time you come across the record in the Bible of an angel coming to men, the universal 100% of the time response is absolute fear. Angels are not fearsome to us. They are Valentine's Day caricatures of chubby babies with little angel wings and they're cute and cuddly and approachable, not so. Angels are ministering spirits. They dwell in the very presence of God. One angel is enough to wipe out armies of God's enemies. 
And as an angel shows up, the fear fills these people. And the angel says, fear not. And look at verse 13. If that wasn't enough. Suddenly there was with that single angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. Now stop there for a moment. Because once again we read this and our tradition and our imagination creep in and we see the one nice angel who says don't be afraid because maybe he's being nice. And now he's joined by a bunch of nice angels in their choir robes with their song books ready to sing the Christmas carols that we all know. Understand this, that word for heavenly host is most often used to describe the arrangement of an army. This might be the heavenly choir, but you need to understand that first and foremost, this is the army that shows up. Arrayed in brilliant, blazing glory, the heavenly armies of God on the hills outside of Bethlehem. If you think one angel is terrifying, multiply that by thousands of thousands. But why does the army show up? Why is it that that heavenly gathering of the armies of God shouts out glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased? The answer is because this is where the conflict is. This is where the battle is going to take place. How can God be at peace with anyone? How could God be pleased with anyone? Because the reality is that all humanity lives in separation, at enmity, at war with the God who made us. We search for peace in this world and we miss the real struggle that our sin, our failure, you and I and every human ever born, that our sin separates us from the God who made us. And the sin isn't just a mistake, it's not just a misstep, it's not a slight inconvenience. That sin sets us in an active struggle, an active living war against God. And God doesn't lose. And so all that remains for sinful people is the judgment of God, the right and righteous judgment of God. And now you have the armies of heaven showing up and saying that there can be peace. And not only peace, but peace with those with whom God is well pleased. How can an angel, how can an army of angels talk about peace, about God being pleased? And to answer that, we need to go to that manger in Bethlehem. Because that is where the peacemaker has come to. What did that first angel say? Fear not. Why? For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That is the center of peace. This news that's for all people. This is not regional good news. This is not ethnic good news. This is good news that is going to impact every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Because this day, someone, one, has been born and he is a Savior. You can't understand your need for a Savior unless you understand what you need to be saved from. Because that God who made us set the standard for his creation, and that standard was be holy as I am holy. That standard was perfection, and we all fall short, and sin has a consequence. And there is only one hope. Someone had to win that battle. Someone had to win that war, that fight against sin uh, that we all failed 
to win. And that's the peace that Christ wins. Through His perfect obedience, through His sacrificial death on the cross, Jesus Christ brought peace between God and men. You heard some of those verses that were read. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, starting in verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Although perhaps for a good person, one might even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And since therefore we have been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, we will be saved by His life. Christ died the just for the unjust, the good for the wicked, the obedient for the rebel. And because He did that, through faith in Christ, we have peace. The only peace that eternally matters, and that is peace with the God who made us. This isn't about just a baby. This is about one that the angel calls Christ the Lord. Imagine that. Those angels arrayed in brilliant light called a baby the Master, the Lord. Someone greater and more important, more powerful than they were. Those are His armies. Lying in that manger, that baby, those are His armies that pierced the sky on those Bethlehem hills that night He was born. But at this time, the king hasn't come to conquer Rome. At this time, the king hasn't come to shatter the bonds of taxation and oppression. At this time, the king has come to deal the death blow to sin and to bring us back to peace with God. And we have to start there. We have to understand that in a world characterized by conflict, it can be easy to lose sight of the only conflict that genuinely matters when it comes to eternity. And now the armies of heaven have come to proclaim peace because a war is coming. Every day that he lived, Jesus Christ would live in active, perfect obedience to the Father. Every day, Satan would continually fight against and attempt to thwart God's plan. But this time, where the first Adam failed in the garden, the second Adam is going to prove to be perfectly faithful. Every day, Every breath, every word, every thought, every intention, absolutely honoring and obedient to God. And through his death and resurrection, he's going to make peace possible between a holy God and ruined sinners. But the question is, does it matter? Is that anything more than a nice story? Or maybe more than a nice story, does it matter now? Because we know that we look forward to peace with God through eternity because our sin has been dealt with, but does that peace with God, that vertical peace, impact our ability to have horizontal peace, our peace in our situations and our circumstances and between people right now? And the answer is it absolutely does. Peace between God and men makes real peace in our lives, here and now, on a day-by-day basis possible. And one of the ways that that works out is peace in our circumstances. We live in a fallen world Physical pain, illness, job loss, even things like natural disasters, those are a part of our human experience. And those things are decidedly not peaceful. So how does a promise with God 
a promise of peace impact our ability to have peace in every situation because the reality is it doesn't remove us from those situations. And we know that uh, by living in this world, we know that being restored to God doesn't bring us peace in every situation, but we still have to remind ourselves that that is expected because there are people that say that it's not. Uh, there are people that say that with enough faith, you can have no circumstances, not just peace, but you can actually be removed from circumstances. Enough faith and you'll get the job. Enough faith and you would be well, and that's absolutely not the case. In fact, what we see is that sometimes obedience to God brings you into decidedly not peaceful circumstances. And there are times when God uses difficult things to discipline us, to correct us, to bring us back to obedience. But for the believer, Jesus even said, in this world, we're going to have trouble. So we don't have to pretend that the coming of Christ makes everything easy. We don't have to pretend that peace means the complete absence of anything difficulty happening in our circumstances. We don't have to pretend that difficult circumstances aren't different and we can just pat each other on the head and say, there, there, you know it'll be okay. Instead, you and I have the ability to view our circumstances differently, to come to a real peace not in spite of, but in the midst of circumstances. And we talked about Paul at several points through the book of Acts. And every time you see Paul, whether in ministry or in prison ministry, you see him at peace. He writes to the church at Philippi in prison, and he writes about peace. In Philippians 4, verse 7, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How do you rejoice in persecution? How do you have real peace in really tough circumstances? Well, the first thing he says is that the Lord is at hand. You want to find peace in your circumstances. First of all, remember that God is not absent from those circumstances. David knew that. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. God does not abandon his people no matter what they face. Second, how do you find peace in circumstances? He says, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Real peace comes not only in knowing that God is there, but it comes in knowing the God who is there, that God who is in control, that God who has every resource in the universe at his disposal. And that's why we pray to him. That's why we bring him our requests, because he knows, because he is able, and because he cares. That's why we can not only pray, that's why we can pray with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, no matter what the outcome is. Lord, deliver me. But even if he doesn't, thanksgiving, why? Because that means that in his sovereignty, in his wisdom, in his love, that is the best circumstance for you. See, we know who God is and we know what his promises are. And if God is sovereign, then there's nothing I'm going through that's out of his control. No matter how big the cancer diagnosis, the catastrophic job loss right before Christmas, no matter how small the wrong turn, the broken taillight, the flat tire. If God is sovereign, then none of those are outside of his control. And that brings peace. 
And we know that God is faithful. And if God is faithful, that means that He won't fail on any promise. After all, we have an entire Bible, an entire human history that proves God's perfect track record of faithfulness. And if He is the same God as He's always been, and He is, then that means He will continue to be faithful to what He has promised to me. And what has He promised to me? That He'll meet my needs. That He'll finish the good work that He started in me. That He'll use every circumstance for my good. And that good being being that He will make me more and more like the Son that He'll sustain us in trials, that He'll provide the means of escape in terms of temptation. And if God loves us, then we know that in all of these circumstances, He's doing what is best. Not what's convenient. What is best. That can be hard to remember, but boy, is there peace in that. To know that this circumstance, whatever that circumstance is, exactly as it is faced, exactly as it is designed, exactly as I encounter it, is the sovereign, holy, all-knowing, all-powerful God's best for me. And so there's peace. Not because these things aren't difficult, they are. Not because there's not things that are heartbreaking. There are. Not because there's not real conflict. There absolutely is. But because of who God is, there's peace. And because He loves us more perfectly, more completely than any human father or mother ever could. But if we're honest, I think sometimes peace in circumstances is the easy part, isn't it? A lot of times it's easy for me to be at peace in my circumstances because I have relatively little control over my circumstances. So it's easy for me to say, well, God, you must have control. I certainly don't. But sometimes peace is a little bit harder to come by in terms of our relationships. But the question is, does peace with God mean that we can have peace in our relationships? And the answer is that it does. And we start here in the church peace between the people of God. And I don't think we often consider what a beautiful, wonderful privilege that is. That the body of Christ is one. Jew, Gentile, male, female, rich, poor, background, doesn't matter that you and I are bound together, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, by one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. We know that, but it brings us together. Even if you look at the history of worship of God, there was division there. You go to the temple, and if you were a Gentile, like most of us, you could only go so far. You could see where God's presence was, but you couldn't get there. There was quite literally a wall between you and the presence of God. And that's why earlier in Ephesians, in Ephesians 2, Paul says that Christ has broken down that dividing wall of hostility that once separated us. He's using that picture of the temple and of the division that was there and saying that God has done away with that, that the body of Christ experiences real unity, real peace. But sometimes even believers struggle to find peace, don't we? Because we're still sinners. We're sinners fellowshipping with other sinners. But what has God done? Well, God has forgiven us. And that impacts how we relate to one another. In Ephesians 4.32, Paul says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Because He's forgiven me, how could I fail to forgive other people? What's the path to peace in our relationships? Forgiveness, constant, quick, 
genuine forgiveness, forgiveness based on the forgiveness that God has extended toward us. Well, but what about when it isn't sin? What about when it's just a disagreement? Because in a body of our size, well, let's be honest, a body of any size, sometimes it's not the gospel issues. Sometimes it's not the sin issues that divide us. Sometimes it's just a difference of opinion. Different convictions that we come to on not central, but nevertheless important things. Well, the danger, of course, is that you and I begin to assume that our conviction is parallel with the gospel, and that all real Christians feel, act, and respond the way that I do to this situation, and Paul speaks of peace in those circumstances as well. Romans chapter 14 talks about people whose consciences bound them to different things, some that would eat certain foods, some that would abstain, some that would celebrate certain days, and some who held every day to be the same. And Paul warns that church in Rome not to judge one another because we have only one judge, And one day we'll all stand before God and we will give an account for ourselves, not for our neighbor, but for ourselves. And in Romans 14, verse 19, Paul says, So let us then pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. See, peace comes not only when we forgive, but when we actively seek what is good for others. Not when we try to win the fight in the board meeting or in the congregational meeting. Not when we try to forcefully move others toward our position, but peace comes when we actively seek what brings up building, what builds others up. Now, that's not going to mean that we always think the same, but it will mean that we are of one mind, united on the priorities, united in our love for one another, and united in the idea that we are called to die to self and to count others as more important than ourselves. You say, that's all well and good, but what about those outside the church? What about those who are antagonistic, hateful, maybe even intentionally hurtful toward us? Can we really be at peace with those who reject Christ or maybe who more pointedly reject us for any number of reasons? And the answer is that we can. Not that we can make everyone agree with us. Not that we can make everyone like us. Not that we can remove any hostility from the world toward the gospel, but in Romans 12, Paul talks about how we interact with those that would consider us enemies. In Romans 12, 14, Paul says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. In Romans 12, 17, he says, Don't repay evil for evil. Instead, do what is honorable in the sight of all. In 12.18, he says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. In verse 19, don't avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God. In verse 20, he says, On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Christian, how are we called to relate to those that we would consider enemies? Those that the world would say are your enemies? The short answer is that we love them. Why would we love them? How is it possible to love them? Well, because we realize that they're not the enemy. You understand that, that you and I don't have human enemies. We have one adversary. and We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't struggle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers and forces of darkness, against Satan, the enemy of our soul. And that spiritual war reminds us that the battle's already been won. 
Remember peace announced by those heavenly armies on the hillsides outside of Bethlehem. The same God who commands those heavenly armies that promise peace to the shepherds is the same God who has conquered our spiritual foe, who has bought peace between us and God, and who therefore has made a way for us to be at peace with others. We sing about the Prince of Peace. Do we recognize the peace that he brings? Because peace is difficult to come by. Some people try to find peace through power. Be strong enough, be loud enough, be convincing enough, be persistent enough, make enough posts, and somehow you win the argument, you win the battle, you win the fight. For some people, peace means just avoiding conflict. Don't say the wrong thing, don't do the wrong thing, maybe don't say anything that would get people riled up don't take a stand, and truth takes a back seat to peace. Some people try to find peace through distraction, whether that's the next promotion, the next vacation, the next drink, the next whatever it is that takes your mind off of the conflicts that are very real and very persistent. But none of those things make for real peace. Peace comes from knowing the God who made you and being rightly related to him. Peace comes through knowing the Prince of Peace. The one who won the war against sin, against death, and against Satan, the great enemy of our soul. Peace comes through knowing the one who will one day rule over all of his creation. Because someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on heaven, on earth, and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So how do we live as we wait for that day? Two questions. First, where do you find peace? We're all searching for it. We all know we need it. So I would ask you today, sitting here, listening, at whatever time, where are you looking for peace? Real peace is first and foremost only found in faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot find peace until you get that central issue resolved about how to find peace with God. And it's not in your working, it's not in your learning, it's not in your giving, it's not in your Sunday attendance, although we love to see you. Peace with God comes only through faith in Jesus Christ, who died the death that we deserve, who bore the sin that was ours, and who covers us in his righteousness, his goodness. And in finding peace with God, then we can find peace in our circumstances. We live in a fallen world, but that is not a surprise to God. We live in difficult times, but it is not a surprise to God. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. Why? Because I can get you out of it? No. Why? Because he has overcome the world. Peace in our circumstances because we know the one that's greater than our circumstances. And second of all, the question comes, where can you pursue peace? We know that we should. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers. We know that as believers, peace isn't an option. Or at least I hope we know that peace isn't an option. Peace is an expected byproduct in our lives. You recognize that, right? As believers, we are expected and anticipated to have peace be an increasing, growing part of our life, not because we get better at avoiding or mitigating conflict, but because that's what the Spirit produces. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. 
The result is that you, as you and I grow, as we mature, as we move through our lives, it's not that we come into conflict less, it's that you and I become better and better at honoring God, at bearing the fruit of the Spirit in the middle of conflict. And so the question is not what conflict you should continue to avoid. The question is today, what do you and I need to do to actively pursue peace? Where do you need to put away anger, bitterness, wrath, malice, and clamor? And replace that with forgiveness, humility. Where do you need to bless those who persecute you? Who do you need to pray for who spitefully uses you? Where do you need to serve those who disagree with you? Where do you need to love the one that the world says you have every right to hate? You say, they don't deserve it. You're right. And here's the reality, neither did I. But at the right time, while we were still weak, Christ died for sinners. The love of God poured out on us. The peace of Christ poured out in our hearts ought to overflow into every time, every place, and every circumstance that we have. And that's not easy, but it's also not based on our strength. Let's pray. Lord, we pray and we worship the Prince of Peace. God, I pray that you would make us a people of peace, not because we ignore the truth, not because we don't speak the truth, but because when we speak the truth, we speak the truth in love. Not because we avoid painful circumstances, but because we move through painful circumstances obediently, faithfully, knowing who you are, the God who is sovereign over those things, knowing who you are, the God who loved us and redeemed us, knowing who you are, the God who will be faithful to accomplish every promise that you have ever made. God, make us a people at peace in a world at war. Convict us of our sin that breaks peace. Bring us to repentance that restores peace. And give us the courage and the humility to actively pursue peace in our relationships and in our circumstances. Today at church, tomorrow at work, at home with our families. We need your help. But we praise you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. And because we have peace with God, we're called to celebrate and to remember certain things. And one of those things that we remember is the death of Christ that brought us peace in the first place. And on the first Sunday of every month, we have the opportunity to celebrate communion together. Another one of those things that we do together as a corporate body, the reminder that there's no division in us. And so as we prepare to celebrate communion, I want to give you a moment to prepare for that. First of all, if you've never been brought to peace with God, if you've never interacted with the gospel, if you have never responded to that call to repent of your sins and believe in the finished work of Christ, if you are not a Christian, if you have any question about that, then I encourage you to just let this pass by. Whether anyone's looking, whether anyone is wondering why you're not, leave that aside. If you are not absolutely convinced that you are right with God through the work of Jesus Christ, let this pass by. There's nothing magical about it that will make you a better person. It is simply a celebration, an external physical celebration of a spiritual reality. 
If you are a believer, I would ask you to take some time to consider the peace you have with God and rejoice in that. The peace that you're called to have in your circumstances and with others. And maybe there's some repentance that needs to take place there. Maybe some reminder that God is sovereign over those things. And in a busy season where time is hard to come by, I want to give you just a minute to deal with those things in your heart. The ushers will come down the aisles, and if you need the communion elements, just put your hand up and they'll make sure that you have that. But prepare to take the bread together, and I'll come back in a moment, and we'll celebrate communion as a body. Lord, it's an amazing thing to understand that you offer peace that's real and lasting. It doesn't take much reflection to remember a time when we've broken peace between others or between you and us because of our sin. Lord, as often as we sin, we're reminded of the greatness of your salvation, the salvation that covers us and cleanses us, that offers us continuing peace with the God who made us. God, I pray that we would never lose the wonder of that, that that would never fail to amaze us and even silence us. Lord, you're a good God who has saved a people who are not good. How could we help but worship? Amen. And so as I read from 1 Corinthians and those familiar words that Paul writes, I'd ask you to prepare to take the bread. That means doing your best to pull at those little tabs on the communion cups. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes those familiar words, For I received from the Lord that what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. And let's pray. Lord, you took on flesh and became like us. God, very God, who became like creation. What an amazing thing. That you would prepare the sacrifice for sin. Better than bulls and goats, better than any offering under the law. The perfect lamb, Jesus Christ. And that you would know pain and suffering and rejection on our behalf. Lord, you are a wonderful Savior. Amen.